Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. But I do... Thank you for coming. This is Lisa Meister. Yeah. <laughs> Lisa, I have known since she was knee high, that tall. And I have known her well. So she comes with um, a teaching and a training that um, I know to be true. And so I'm very appreciative that you decided, yes, it's time. It is time for this. And it is time to let the people know, and the educators, first responders, hospitals, people that work with many different clients, counselors included, um, they need to know what you know. So good morning and welcome. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you, church. Thank you, everybody, for coming. I appreciate each and every one of you. This is not an easy topic. It's not easy for me. Not easy for anybody. But it's very important because this goes on around the world. It's been going on since the beginning of time. And if we don't talk about it, it's going to continue to go on. And when the children come and start talking about it, it's, nobody stops it. And this is happening all over the place. Kids are coming to their parents, and they're coming to their teachers, they're coming to the counselors, and they're coming to their physicians, and they're saying, ritual stuff's happening to me, and they're being shut up and sent back to the rituals because nobody believes it, because nobody's talking about it. So it's time for it to be talked about and explained so we can stop it. We're stopping it for the children, but we're also stopping it for the adults because when they're starting to talk about it, people are telling them to shut up. Don't want to hear about it. Don't believe it. Or this is just too much for me. I don't have the capacity for you. And if we're telling that to people, then where are they going to go? So they go into drugs, they go into alcohol, they go into suicide because we don't have the capacity. So let's open up our capacity, let's open up our compassion, because we have a God who's full of compassion and tender mercies, and that's what he expects us to have too. So you have come here because you have compassion, and I appreciate each and every one of you, and everyone listening online, you have compassion, and you have opened up your capacity, and I appreciate that.
So thank you. So this is hard. And I'm going to try to be as gentle on you as I can be. I'm not going to go into the really super terrifying, scary stuff. Because I don't want to. And you don't need to hear that. I was born in Ohio. Moved up to this area when I was four. Met Daniil when I was four. I got to see Pastor Jasta when she was a newborn. She was gorgeous. <laughs> got to babysit for her. She was a sweetheart. She's a perfect child. <laughs> she still is. You need to know that. And on the outside, my family was perfect. I mean, they were perfect. My dad had a pharmacy. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. We were perfect children. We excelled at everything we did, sports and academics. And in my mind, I had the perfect family, and I just felt sorry for everybody who wasn't part of my family. And if you saw us, they're like, oh, man, look at that family. And people would ask my dad, how do you have such good kids? And they'd ask him for parenting advice, and he'd very proudly give it. And then I, you know, I just really thought, like, man, my family's perfect, and I bought into it because I broke in my mind because of what I was going through. But as I was chunking through my life, I also knew that there was stuff that was just really badly wrong, but I, I, I just could never figure out what it was. It's like I knew I was broken, but I, I just could never quite quantify what it was. But there was things that happened that I had this box in my mind that I would put in there. And, and to be a little bit graphic, bled in my underwear in the morning. Made no sense. Or my dad playing games with us where he would put us in extreme pain. And the, the idea of the game was you had to take pain as long as you could without screaming out. And this was when we were tiny. That was a normal game in our house. Or my dad walking around without clothes on. That was normal. Or being forced to wear a bikini when I was really little. And I'm like, why do I have to wear a bikini? I don't want to wear a bikini. I want to wear a one-piece. Why do you know, like things like that. Made no sense. We had this perfect Christian family. We went to church. That made no sense. But I put these in a box. Or when I was in sixth grade, I went to school. I had a hickey on my neck. All the kids were laughing at me because I was supposed to be this perfect Christian girl. And I remember thinking, I must have given it to myself. How do you give a hickey to yourself? And I'm like, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I really was trying to figure out how could I have given it to myself? Okay, does it make sense? So I put it in my box because I have the perfect Christian family, so that just doesn't make sense. So there's all these things that I just would put away in this box and I kept, or my dad would shower with me. You know, inappropriate, absolutely. Put it in a box. So, and then my dad was horrific in the house. Like, the garage door would go up at night when he would come home and he would just <gasps> inside from a perfect Christian family. And, he, I mean, if the dinner wasn't on the table within five minutes of him coming home, all hell would break loose. 
I mean, you had to manage his emotions like anybody's business, try to keep him in his little zone, or he would scream and yell, and it was he could go on forever, ever. Terror at night, begging God to just don't let me wake up in the morning. Just don't let me wake up in the morning. Writing, writings. God, you know, these these stories of all these girls that would die all the time. But I had this perfect Christian family. So I went away to college, and I got in a Christian group, and I made a friend. And she was from an atheist family that was abusive, and I was from the perfect Christian family, and we started talking about family systems. And our family systems were exactly the same, and it just made no sense to me. Like, how could my perfect Christian family be exactly like her, her unchristian family that was abusive? And it made no sense to me. And we would, like, we'd have these four-hour lunches, and I just, like, what? That's just crazy. That's just crazy. And it took me four years. Now, I graduated valedictorian of my class. And it took me four years to move from, boy, I have a perfect Christian family, to maybe my family wasn't perfect. So I'm like, maybe I'm not as smart as I thought I was. <laughs> like, it just, I just, so, and that's mind control. They perfectly control every thought that you have. So I, f I, I found Patrick, and poor Patrick, because I'm starting to think through some of these things, and I'm starting to test out some of these ideas, and he's starting to meet my family, and they're wacky. And he's like, I don't think your family is all that great. And I'm like, oh, no, they're perfect. <laughs> you know, like, why he married me, I'm not quite sure. But God must have put it on his heart. And so <laughs> we got married. And I, there was, again, there's just something really wrong with me. And in college, I was crying all the time. I had no control of my emotions. And again, I didn't know why. I was known as the girl who cried all the time, which was horrendously embarrassing. So we got married, and, and then you know, we got going on in life, started having kids. And by the tw time I was 29, we had three. They were five, three, and one. We had my parents over for dinner. And, and that was what started changing everything. We didn't have them over often because they lived a few hours away. And nothing major happened. We just had a couple things. My dad was mean to my daughter, or nice to my daughter, mean to my son, hurt his feelings. And then, like, we had cake for dinner, and my daughter was just eating all the icing off her cake. And my husband said, hey, you got to eat some cake with your icing, so my dad took a big scoop of the icing and put it in my daughter's mouth while he glared menacingly at my husband. That's all that happened. But there was something inside that just started moving up, and I'd always had this ball of emotions inside of me that would just start moving up, and I'd push it back down. I'd just get real busy. Like in college, I was so busy that when Patrick wanted to start dating me, there was no time anywhere us to date. He's like, Lisa, you have no time for me. This thing is you have too many irons in the fire. And I looked at my schedule. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 you know, that's a problem. 
You had to start getting things out. But that's how I kept from thinking. You know, I, I couldn't deal with this ball. I mean, it was like pain and terror and all these things. I'm like, I'm not looking at that. I'm not looking at that. So I just push it back down. So when this dinner with my dad happened, that ball was right there again. I'm like, can't breathe. And so I got my kid, they left, got my kids to bed, and I took my angst out on the linoleum, which I always did. We had sparkling floors. They were incredible. So I'm like scouring the floors. Patrick comes in his very understated way, watches me for a while. He's like, so what's going on? I'm like, he's, he's budding up to her. He's budding up to her. He's like, okay. Who's budding up to whom? I'm like, Dad, he's budding up to Jessica. Okay. What would he do? You know, scouring away. I'm stopping. I'm like, I don't know. It's like the information stops. I don't, I don't know. But if, you know, Patrick had been close enough, which it was a good thing he wasn't, I would have grabbed him by his shirt and I would have started shaking him. And I'm like, but you can't let him. Don't let him. He's like, okay, I won't. I promise. Whatever it is, I'm not going to let him do it. And, and it was just nothing. I mean, just nothing was there. It's like there's something there. And this is really bad. But I just don't know what it is. It was a horrible feeling. And that started nightmares that I was going to have for months of groups of men raping me. Groups, not just one, groups of men. And two weeks later, I had my first flashback of sexual abuse. And it was like real time. I was like slapping myself, trying to get it, the feelings off. I was screaming. Patrick was right there. He's like, what? You know, like, what is going on? Get it off, get it off. And I didn't know about repression, which is a forgetting, like you just don't know that it was there. I, I would never have said I was a sexual abuse survivor. I mean, I had the perfect Christian family, right? I had the perfect Christian family. There's no way I was a sexual abuse survivor. So <laughs> I snuck into the Christian bookstore, walking around trying to find something about sexual abuse, Someone walks up and says, can I help you? And I'm like, I have a friend who's been sexually abused. Do you have a book to help him? So they found me a book. I think it was a book by Dan Allender, The Wounded Heart. So I'm, I'm reading through it. And I'm like, they start talking about repression and what repression is. And I'm like, oh my gosh, everything I know about repression I've learned from my mom. This is insane. It's all from her. And I'm reading through this book, and the, the flashbacks kept coming. At first, at first, there was just body parts and, you know, things like that. And, I, I, and I'm like, this, this information started coming up. It's my dad and my mom knows. It's like, this information's there. I'm like... How do I, you know, how do I know this? What's this information mean? I, do I trust it? That's crazy. 
and then a few weeks, and, and at that point, I'm like, I can't even remember what my dad looks like. <laughs> like, I'm losing my mind like crazy. Like, lock me up. This is nuts. And then a few weeks later, he came into the picture. Flashbacks with my dad in it. It's like, okay, it is my dad. So we started riding the waves. So this was 1999, January. So we're riding the waves of this. I mean, it was insane. We went to talk to my parents. <laughs> so we're sitting in the living room, most awkward conversation ever, and my dad's nasty, just nasty, and, and he smirks at me, and as you call molesting, he's smirking, and I got mad. I got mad. <laughs> And Patrick, he's like, I've never been so proud of you in my life. I'm like, don't call it molest. I said, you raped me. And I had some papers, and I slammed them on the table. And my dad started coming out the chair at me. I'm like, whoa. Patrick jumps up to get between us. And it was like an angel pushing him back down in the chair. It's just, whoom. And my mom jumps up. I'm going to make a phone call. You know, she's running out of the room, just like terrified. And I'm like, whoa. Whoa. My dad's like, get out of my house. I'm like, okay. I've seen all I wanted to see. That's 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 enough for today. So we left. And by that summer I felt like I was going crazy and I wasn't fighting it anymore. And Patrick's like, okay, I think we need some help. So we went to a clinic and there was this wonderful Christian psychiatrist there. And he said, I said, I, I, I'm going crazy and I'm not fighting it anymore. And he said, Lisa, people that are going crazy do not know that they're going crazy. I'm like, this is good news. <laughs> <laughs> so he took that home, but I kept getting worse. I kept getting worse. I'm like, Lord, I'm accepting this. I'm working through this. I'm doing everything right. I'm, I'm I'm going after you, I'm going after healing, I'm not fighting this, I'm doing everything right. Why am I getting worse? This makes no sense to me. And then by the fall, about nine months into this, flashes of ritual started coming up, like bonfires and chanting and dead people and... Uh, Grim Reaper robes with like the hoods down, you couldn't see faces. Like blood everywhere and um, graves with people in them, dead people in them. And I'm like, what am I, what is this? I had never heard of virtual abuse. I'd never heard of it before. I had no idea what I was seeing. And it was terrifying, and that fear was just overpowering. And I'm like, yep, now I've lost my mind. You know, just drug me and throw me into an institution somewhere and I will be happy. I promise you, I will be happy there. <laughs> just get rid of me. So back we went to the psychiatrist. And so Patrick and I both went in this time and started explaining to him what I was seeing, what was going on. And he said... This is satanic ritual abuse, 
and I already knew you were a survivor. Like, wait a minute, hold on. What in the world are you talking about? And he's like, Lisa, the, the level of severity, the sexual abuse your dad was doing in the home, it's the 90-something percentile, it was severe, does not happen unless there's sexual abuse, or there's satanic ritual abuse in the mix. What do you do with that? Like, I don't want to be a survivor of SRA. Like, I, let's just, no, absolutely not. I don't want to, no. You know, I mean, there's things that happen, just like, Lord, no, I don't want this. You know, and people say, oh, come on. You know, it's like the thing about SRA survivors is they don't want to be an SRA survivor. And they will do everything they can to talk themselves out of being a survivor. And when they go into validating it, they're not validating it to be true. They're trying to validate it to be false. And they will fight tooth and nail to talk themselves out of it. And it's a hallmark of survivors all the time. And we call that ping-ponging. Truth, no, it's not. Let me tell you why it's not true. Yeah, it's true. No, let me tell you why it's not true. It goes back and forth. It is insane. I'm like, just, I'm just insane. Just lock me away. Just drug me out of my mind and put me away. So I'm like, okay, I got to validate this. And Patrick, bless his heart, he's like, okay. So up we came here, and we get up here, and <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, who do you talk to? It didn't, it didn't even hit my mind until we got here. It's like you can't just walk up the street and it's like, hey, do you know my family? Were they involved in satanic ritual abuse? <laughs> you know, you can't just go take a survey. So I'm here and I'm praying. I'm like, Lord, who do I talk to? And he's like, Daniil. I'm like, oh, yeah. Because Daniil knew my family. We met her when I was four. She worked for my dad off and on through the years. We came to her, Pastor Spohn's church off and on. She might know something. It took a while to find her. She did some name change things just to make it hard on me. <laughs> but we found her. And I'm like, Danielle, I've got some questions to ask you. And she's like, come on over. Now, we had all our kids with us, and they'd been in the car for all this time. So we get to her house, and they are running amok. I mean, they are bouncing off her walls, knocking everything over. I'm sure they broke some stuff. And she's sitting there like, <laughs> this is great. I'm like, this is a nightmare. <laughs> and she's, you know, and then I think my son broke a lamp. And then she's like, Lisa, your kids are normal. <laughs> like, what are you talking about, Danielle? And she goes, Lisa, when you came with your dad to visit at this age, you would sit on the couch and you wouldn't move. And your eyes would go like this. And you just sit there. And your dad would ask you a question and your head would go and you'd answer the question. And then you'd snap back and you didn't move a muscle. 
and that's mind control. I was a highly controlled kid. And she said, I'm so happy to see your kids are normal. And then one flew by on the chandelier. <laughs> so then we were able to... <laughs> yeah, she didn't have a chandelier. But we knew my dad, the part of their testimony had already always been they had been in the New Age movement. Well, they had actually been part of the spiritualist camp in Bayshore. And there was a witch involved. So we were able to connect with the witch's ex-husband. So we ended up at his house. And one of my dad's, my dad had a pharmacy, so I used to work. I worked at his pharmacy through the years. And his new wife was a customer of his that I recognized. And she's like, oh, hi, come on in. <laughs> Let me right in. Like, I need to talk to your husband. Okay, here he is. He's sitting at the table. So I told him who I was and my maiden name. He immediately looks to Patrick like he's going to come and beat him up. I'm like, okay, we're getting some validation now. <laughs> and I said, your, your wife was the witch, the spiritualist camp. They ritually abused children of whom I was one. And then he goes into his, oh, 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 well, I didn't go all that often. And, and you know, well, no, I never saw kids there. And, and, and I don't know your family. I don't know your dad. I don't know his pharmacy. And his wife goes, sure you do. It's right two blocks down the street. That's where the subway is down right now. He's like, I don't, I don't know any subway. And he's like, you got the bookmark of his book in your book you're reading right now. No, I don't. And she goes, well, I'll go get it. <laughs> she pulls it out, puts it right down on the book, right in front, or on the table, right in front, well-soiled bookmark with my dad's pharmacy logo and a gnome on it. Puts it right in front of him. He goes, I don't know your dad. I don't know his pharmacy. I'm like, okay, that's all I need to know. So we did some validating. It's like, all right, Lord. So I need to accept I'm a survivor. Then we did some other stuff, too. My dad was in bad stuff, so was my mom. And survivors validate. And there's, you know, my dad was in Knights of Columbus, which is SRA-specific stuff that they do, Masons. There's, you know, you start going into the families and you start seeing that there's nasty stuff that they're into. There's nasty stuff that they're doing. And it's horrible. So once you validate, and, and it's a very important step survivors go through, then you got to start facing what happened. You got to start healing. And that started 20 long years of healing. It was 20 years of depression and and flashbacks and triggers. I mean, the kids, like Halloween is a horrible time for survivors. The Grim Reapers, I mean, that's what they wore in these rituals. And having to face that, it's like, <gasps> you know, I mean, like a panic attack in a grocery store or in a pharmacy is not real comfortable with your kids. Having your mom screaming and like down in a, 
hump on the floor, like fetal position, the kids don't like that. <laughs> so, you know, we go in, to, cause sometimes you have to. So the kids are like, mom, look to the left. Mom, look to the right. Mom, look down. Mom, look up. You know, and, and that went on for years because that was our only way to navigate. And survivors have that all the time and they're embarrassed. It's embarrassing. But these triggers are real. It throws you right back. All of a sudden, you're in the middle of a circle and these people are circling you and they're chanting and there's knives and then, you know, it's like, <gasps> and all that comes up again. It's horrifying. And then everybody's celebrating it. Let's do trunk or treat. And isn't this fun? The kids are getting candy. And you're like, I'm trying not to get killed. It's real. It's real. So we went through that. It's not easy to get over those things. And people are like, just don't think about it. Just go on. <laughs> like, I'm trying not to think about it really trying not to think about it. And then people are like, just forgive your dad. You're just not forgiving him. I'm like, I'm trying. You know, it's really not a forgiveness problem. Let me guarantee you it's not a forgiveness problem. I mean, the, and, and the, you know, and then it's, oh, I don't, churches, I don't believe in SRA. I've never heard of it. I don't believe it. And counselors, you know, the counselors hadn't, ever met a survivor before. I was blessed with several survivors that, or counselors that believed it, but they just didn't know what to do about it. You know, so like I couldn't even talk about the memories. I'd write them in pencil because it was too scary to write them in pen and I'd hand them to them and they'd read them and then they'd just look at me and I'd look at them. They're like, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. And so I finally found a very brave counselor and we did EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which was weird. And it had these two things that would vibrate one after another and we would, you're supposed to be on this train going by the memory, looking at it, talking about it, while these things are vibrating and the idea is to move the memory from your back part of your brain, which holds trauma, to move it to the front cortex where you can process it. So I'd go from stuttering, talking, crying in a two-hour session to, okay, now I can talk about it and not cry. But I can never stay on that stupid train. You know, it's like, nope, we're going to stay on the train and I'd be right in the middle of it again, screaming at the top of my lungs in this building, you know. <laughs> and this one particular one, we, you know, I was in the middle of this, ritual, I'm screaming, I'm crying, and we're trying to, you know, she's like, get back on the train. I'm like, I can't get on the train. You know, it's just like too much. And so we finally resolved it. And then I, and she's like, you know, I'm just so traumatized. And then she goes, I'm sorry, our session's over. I'm like, and I walk into her office at the end, and friends of mine are sitting in her office. And I'm like, Goodness, <laughs> like it's just horrific. There's nothing easy about this at all. So that was helpful. So I moved from a lot of these horrific memories to I can at least think about them without falling apart. Now as far as trick-or-treating and all the decorations, 
I just started staring at him and saying, Lord, you're with me. They're just stupid decorations, and they're not going to hurt me. And it took several years of facing them and looking at them and saying, I'm not going to die. And I finally got over them. And so, um, and then going over scriptures, my healing was more in the word of God than anywhere else. And the brave, <laughs> the brave counselors that stuck with me when they didn't know what to do. A lot of staring at each other, but we made it through. So, the idea that yeah, 20 years is a long time, and people are like, you've got to be kidding me. But survivors are going much more quickly now. We did not have Google. We did not have the Internet in 1999. But now, like, I have Only God Rescued Me, the title of my memoir, and I have ministries now. I've got Facebook groups for women survivors, trying to get some going for men survivors. Hopefully someday we will. But finding community for survivors helps them to talk about what helps them. It va we're validating people faster because of these groups coming alongside. They're saying, hey, have you tried this modality? Have you tried that modality? And that really encourages them. It's helping them chunk through information quicker. It's helping them to heal much faster. Things that took me like six years to figure out, they're getting through three months. It's crazy, crazy. But that's the goodness of God in the land of the living. And God's a healing God. He's a healing God of every trauma that there is. So moving out of my story and moving on. SRA, satanic ritual abuse. A lot of people take a long time before they come out of it the way I did. You know, for me, I was 29 when the memories came, and, and some people are coming out of it early. So I've heard of 19-year-olds coming out of it. Some of them are in their 80s. It depends on where they are. Ten, they have to have a place where they're feeling safe. Their, their life has to have a safety factor going on before it comes out. And before that, you're going to have a crash and burn going on in their life. They're going to have coping mechanisms going on. Alcohol, cigarettes, drugs. There's going to be a lot of self-medicating. They're going to have, men some have mental problems. Bipolar, schizophrenia. And a lot of people think that that's the issue, but the root is SRA. And they're going to be misdiagnosed. Some of them really aren't bipolar or they're really not schizophrenic. Once they heal from SRA, they're going to be fine. They're going to be constantly mind-numbing. Like me, I just got on a hamster wheel of, I'm just going to be so busy, I'm not going to think because that ball that was inside of me, I was going to keep pushing it down, and I was good at that. Self-harm, suicidal ideations, unsafe decisions, cutting. Uh, a lot of them are financial, have financial instability and inability to keep a job. No matter how hard they try, it's just not going to be there. Homelessness is huge. If you go into the homeless community, you will find so many SRA survivors. They just can't seem to keep their life together. They just never can. 
waves of functional ability going on. Difficulty relate keeping friendships. I'm sorry? Functionability. Terror of God. They'll be on the fringes of the church. They just can't ever quite get in. Mistrust of people. They just can't trust anybody. Fear of crowds. Humanizing animals. Panic attacks, anxiety, and complex PTSD. And they probably don't know why. No idea why. Homosexuality and gender confusion, and from what I've heard, a high majority of people experiencing this are SRA survivors. Holiday fear and birthday fear. They hate, survivors hate their birthdays. Birthdays are the worst day for survivors. And they don't know why they hate their birthdays. So for satanic ritual abuse, if you put in satanic ritual abuse in Google, you're going to see satanic panic and all the negative stuff's going to come up because they have gone in, and when I'm talking about they, I mean the powers that be that are the, the organized crimes, the, the satanic groups, and they have a ton of power, and they get in there, and you will find page after page after page that's all negative on satanic ritual abuse. And you have to go really far to find anything real on it. So you want to put in organized abuse. And, and this is a, it's a better way of getting there. And it's abuse that is structured for a specific purpose. Now, under organized abuse, we have four areas. And one is religious, of which we include satanic ritual abuse. Now, if you put in ritual abuse, you will find a lot more information. It's a lot easier to find it. Or abuse with ritualistic elements, especially if you're looking for police cases, law cases, abuse with ritualistic elements, you'll find it. But under religious abuse, I like using satanic ritual abuse because that's calling it what it is. God doesn't pull punches. God calls things what they are. You've got Santeria. That's um, the South American version that goes through the Catholic Church. You've got voodoo, hoodoo, you got stuff through the Jesuit order. You've got the Brotherhood. There's all sorts of names. I mean, you start going down that rabbit hole, and everybody's got their own version of it. You got the Mormon Church. You've got the Catholic Church. Really, all the churches have their own spin on it. You've got secret societies. Secret societies, bad. Masons, Knights Templar, the Illuminati, Opus Dei, Knights of Malta, Rosicrucians, Magnificat, Knights of Jerusalem, Balafarin, Knights of Columbus, Knights Templar, or I did that one already. They are 
all very satanic, all ritual abuse. Then you have those with political agendas. The CIA has MKUltra, mm -hmm. Russia Spets, Israelis Mossad, you have UK's MI6, all high mind control, all have ritual abuse, all satanic. They, they are really good at getting in there because when they do satanic ritual abuse, they dissociate the kids, and once the kids are dissociated, they can get in there and do mind control. They slip that in, and then they can control the kids and get them to do what they want. And if they get the kids to do that, they can also get adults. <coughs> Economic gain, sex trafficking rings, pornography industry, child sex abuse material, CSAM, that's real big on the internet right now. They're learning about that. We're not calling it child pornography anymore, right? Call it what it is, child sex abuse material. All these groups, inter, you know, they overlap each other. They're all working together. So the, the definition of satanic ritual abuse that I have created is it's an extremely sadistic sexual, physical, emotional, verbal, spiritual, psychological abuse of a child or a vulnerable adult in the worship of Satan through the, wor through the mocking of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It includes torture, mind control, child pornography, and trafficking. So why does it exist? Why do they do it? They do it for power. They get a lot of power. They get a lot of power. They get a lot of money. My dad retired at 50, and he didn't do it because he was a pharmacist. When he sold his pharmacy, he got $60,000 for it. So it wasn't because he got rich being a pharmacist. Get position. They give each other positions in society. They give them positions in politics. They give them positions in the music industry and in Hollywood. And throughout the world, they are interconnected in crazy ways. It's a fraternity-type relationship at all levels. Pride. Alistair Crowley, in the Holy Book of Thelema, said, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. This do what thou wilt has been a satanic pride. You know, Satan fell because he felt like he had ability to be as good as God, right? I don't want to do what you say. I want to do what I want to do. And that's why people sin, right? Because the devil's like, well, you shouldn't do things the way God wants them done. And wasn't that what his whole thing with Jesus was in the wilderness? Well, if you do, you know, if you do it the way God's saying, it's, you're going to have to go through all this stuff. It's going to take you a long time. You just bow down to me and I'll give it to you right now. Well, he does this in these rituals. Look what I'm going to give you. You do, what, you do what I tell you to do. I'll give you all this stuff. And they do. They get a stuff. They get a lot of stuff. And they get demonic power. It is supercharged demonic power through these rituals. 
I mean, not just demonic power, but supercharged power. And that's why they do it. And it doesn't matter what groups they are. Church of Satan, voodoo, witchcraft, it's all the same because it all comes down to Satan. So he'll give everybody their own flair and make them think they're doing it, you know, hey, you've really arrived, you're cool. But, you know, the devil's not all that creative. So some of them may have, you know, Christian iconography going or voodoo iconography going or whatever, but it all comes down to killing kids, right? And that's what the devil likes. The devil's smirking at, at God when he's doing it. He's like, look what I can make people do. Isn't that great? Ha ha, God, look at me. There's an article in LifeSite News, and according to Zachary King, who was a high wizard, he said, killing something is the ultimate offering to Satan, and if you kill an unborn, that's his ultimate goal. And there's a lot of people who are like, yeah, I'll do that. You give me power, yeah, I'll do it. And people are lining up and have been since the beginning of time. Savali says, now if you, if Savali is a survivor, who has researched really far into the occult, he knows a lot. He said, the real agenda behind the occult, and this is what he said, when I was younger, I believed that the goal of occult groups, including the one I was raised in, was to create a better world through the coming new world order. I truly believed in my cult host that I was serving mankind by preparing to help usher in the time of he who is to come who after his birth was known as he who is come, as well as by other names. We're talking Satan here. I worked hard to improve things and dedicated my life to what I believed would be the betterment of mankind. What I had not remembered at that time was the secret held by my core chi system, which was wholly dedicated to Satan. That the group I was in, while publicly stating their desire to bring in new world order, filled with joy and peace, was actually committed to the complete destruction of mankind. The reason for this simply, they serve Satan, and that is his agenda. He was mankind destroyed because he hates all men who created by God loves them. The chi system parts were programmed since they were in the womb to absolutely hate God and all men. Mankind was labeled as mortals who were fallen descended state and to desire the destruction of all mortals so that the immortal or ascended could reign. So it's all, you know, we're just here to bring love and joy to the world. But they know that they're here to destroy all mankind. You know, it's that dichotomy going on. And I've talked to people in the Church of Satan because they like to talk to me. And they're telling me, we're just here to help the world. We're here doing good, right? No, no you're not. So who participates? You know, there's, there's the curious, and those are the people that are going to show you what they're doing. They're gonna have pentagrams on, they're bedecked, they're tattooed, they're, they're going to show you what they're doing. And those are just the curious. But then you've got businessmen, entertainment industry, politicians, the military, and the religious leaders. 
and they're not going to tell you what they're doing. They're going to hide it. Then you're never going to know. You go in their homes. You came into my home. You wouldn't have seen any thing satanic anywhere. So Savali speaks again, the different types of SRA and mind control. This is a book he has. And he puts it down this way. You have the dabblers. These are teens and curious adults. Now these are people that are reading literature on Satanism and witchcraft, and they want to try it out. And this is all over the internet, books. You've got um, the New Agers, the Wiccans. They read literature on Satanism and witchcraft, and they want to try it. They practice common rites. Some animal sacrifice is going to be done. There's vows on silence and threats to participants, but they're going to leave evidence because they're not trained in their meticulous cleanup. So, you know, there's sometimes in the news, they're like, oh, we found, you know, rituals in the woods and there's all this sacrifice we've done. That's dabblers. Now, I have those reach out to me too and I've talked to them. And it's, it, it's interesting. You know, they're like, we're just, you know, we're just doing good stuff. Then you have Wiccans and witchcraft covens. And white Wiccans can also be dabblers, and I've talked to them as well, and they're like, we are moral. We are moral. And they're casting spells for healing for good purposes. They are, you know. And if we're putting bad spells on people, they're, they're renegades. We're putting them on because they did something bad I didn't like. I'm like, well, what if another Wiccan isn't as moral as you, and they're putting a spell on someone who doesn't deserve it? And they're like, well, that's not my problem. Right? Then you got the black Wiccans, which are, they abuse members starting in childhood, animal and rarely child sacrifice, death curses. They have vows of silence with burying people alive and it's high matriarchal control. Now we have local satanic covens, which is what I experienced and what goes on here. This is generational, have almost complete control of small towns. Mind control is high, they have don't tell rituals, they bury kids alive, and then they'll bring them back, you know, the idea of this is you get people as close to death you can and bring them back because that's the mocking of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which they're really into. Torture, sex tra trafficking, and pornography. They have outsiders that come in to teach, which I highly wonder if what, that's why my dad came here. I'm not sure. And they're more likely to leave marks or evidence of abuse on members. There are, I, I talk to thousands of survivors, and they, you know, some of them have shown me their scars just all over their body. It's horrific. There's loss of fingers, toes, burn marks on backs, scars throughout their body. Now, the, the amount of control these places have 
in these towns we'll get into a little bit later are incredible. They keep survivors from getting out, from telling their stories, from getting help at all. It's amazing. Now the ability, this is fascinating too. It's like, well, how, if you're generational, why do some get out and some stay in? When in these rituals you have victims and then you have perpetrators, but they turn all the victims, eventually you're forced to do th bad things too. And so I remember with me, they, you know, you, they put the knife in your hand and I would just be shaking my head imperceptibly no because you're not allowed to just say no because you're mind controlled. But everything in me was like, I cannot do this. You know, everything in me was like, no. But there were some kids that were like, yes. There, there was like this bloodlust thing for some. I don't understand. But in the groups, they're picking up on who is who. Now, for the kids that can't, they're abused more horrifically and the ones that are aligning with it turn more into the abusers. So somehow they figure that out early on. And that's how this generational stuff goes. For the kids that get out, get out, they are targeted throughout life. They have trouble. They get blacklisted with jobs. They have financial problems just all sorts of issues going on, it's incredible. Next is government mind control. When you get into government abused survivors, incredible fear, incredible fear. I have a podcast, government mind controlled survivors do not wanna talk, uh-uh, no way, will not talk, terrible fear. It's on military compounds, doctor's offices, hospitals, and labs. That's where these take place. They create strong bonds to the primary handlers. There's trigger words, sounds, numbers, and songs. Suicide triggers go back to family and cult programming. Now, I've, I've talked to some of these people. They go into these dissociated states. We'll get into dissociation later they'll start mumbling just strings of numbers or like words that are nonsensical or like nursery rhymes or strange songs. Just like they're not there and they're just mumbling weird things over and over and over. If you've seen Jason Bourne movies, that's what we're talking about here. Remember he was you know, he's out there, he's assassinating people, and he's like, there's something, how did I get trained to do this? And then he ends up going to a military compound lab, and that's where he had been mind-controlled. That's what we're talking about here. And then the last one is national high-level satanic groups. Major, major cities, generational, extreme loyalty, begins in infancy and rituals. We're talking about this is national and international. They run the world. They're the elites. They run the governments. They run the high finances of the world. 
LifeSite News, September 9, 2015, in the interview of Michael Hickborn with Zachary King, and he was the former satanic high wizard. He grew up Baptist. And he has a book, Abortion is a Satanic Sacrifice. And he was from the High Church of Satan, and he was in a satanic coven, and he would get called into abortion clinics. And if a mayor was trying to get legislation passed, and he couldn't pass the legislation, he kept putting it on the ballot, wasn't getting passed, put it on the ballot again, wasn't going to pass. So he would put it, he'd call in Zachary King, and they would do a ritual in an abortion clinic, and lo and behold, it'd get passed. Isn't that amazing? But this is what King said. As the high wizard, you're the go-to guy in the satanic coven, so most people either call someone that they know in that coven, or they'll just call because we did a lot of work with the Illuminati as well, so they'll call them. This is all obviously people that have had to be in the know of these kinds of things, but you got invited to participate. The World Church of Satan isn't the only organization that does satanic sacrifices in these facilities. There are other witchcraft organizations, such as Wiccans, who are really involved in committing abortions inside these high-profile facilities. Sometimes get invited to do the ritual abortions by the director of the facility or some high-up administrator, or sometimes the doctor is a Satanist, and they'll invite you to come in and participate in an abortion, or they'll want to do a ceremony at the end of the day. Now, at the end of the day, every day, satanic groups do like a black mass service, usually around midnight. It'll be an extended service that lasts about two to three hours where they dedicate all the babies that were killed that day to Satan. Doesn't matter why the women go in for the abortion, all the babies get dedicated to Satan at the end of the day. So dates to look out for in SRA. Now, this is really good to know in counseling, in schools, for EMS and everything, your friends, because survivors are going to be impacted by this. The solstices, December 21st, June 21st, equinox, March 21st and September 21st. Then also the midway between all of these, Candlemas, it's February 2nd, Beltane, May 1st, Lamas, August 2nd, and Sawin and Halloween, October 30th and 31st. Now these are high ritual dates, and they don't just show up on these dates, they are prepping for these things. I mean, you think we have church holidays, you know, people show up, or maybe they don't, people aren't praying and preparing. These people are preparing. I mean, they've got certain chants that they've been memorizing. They've, you know, they're preparing months in advance. I mean, these groups are focused on the demonic. They are, I mean, they put Christians to shame. They just do. I mean, we really need to be on our knees and posture of prayer and warfare. Now, the name of Jesus breaks what they do, what they've been spending months doing. The name of Jesus breaks it like that. 
which is why they hate Jesus so badly. Now you say the name of Jesus, and they're like, God, don't do that. Like, in Jesus' name, in the name of Jesus. And they're just like, ah, love it. Yay. Yeah. But they spend a lot of time prepping. Full moons, any spectacular moon, blue moons, heaven event, Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th's a real deal. The birthday of the victim is horrendously bad. Now, God has the shield of faith, right? On, their, on a birthday, they put a healing barrier on a victim so that they can't heal. So survivors hate their birthdays. They are tremendously victimized on their birthdays. And then they put things on them so that they, they're just not going to heal. So you've got to remove that in the healing process. All Christian holidays, especially Good Friday, Easter, and Christmas Eve. And then some groups will even go after Mother's Day, Father's Day, Independence Day, Valentine's Day, and Thanksgiving. I mean, you just don't miss a thing. All, all groups have their own special days. And then also, they'll be doing things in their own homes. They'll have their own get-togethers, so you know, because they kind of get addicted to this stuff. Need an extra pick-me-up demon, whatever. So they'll add more to it. And rituals happen between 12 and 3 a.m. And where do they happen? They happen in homes. They happen in basements of churches, doctors' offices, political offices, schools, abortion clinics, remote locations, forests, military bases, hospitals, daycares. You name it, they're doing it. It's horrible. It's horrible. And it's going on worldwide. The Humanist International Organization says that Africa is specifically having a problem because it's really in your face there. Witch doctors are claiming the power and the shedding of blood and they're killing people all over the place because people are running to witch doctors trying to get healed of all sorts of stuff. Uganda, Nigeria, Swaziland, Liberia, Tanzania, Namibia, Zimbabwe specifically, and especially Uganda. It's really horrific. But there, at least you know, and everybody knows it's happening, but it is happening worldwide. I get, con I get contacted by people all around the world wanting to talk to me. Leo Igwe, the representative for International Humanist and Ethical Union, says ritual killing and related human rights abuses take place on the continent because many people still believe that the use of charms and the performance of ritual sacrifice can fortify them spiritually, enhance their fortunes in business and during elections, or protect them from harm, disease, poverty, accident, death, or destruction. And it does. The devil can do those things. He's... He has power that he can divvy out. He has manifestations that he shows people, and people go, whoa. Remember Egypt, 
when Moses threw his staff down and turned into a snake, Pharaoh's like, that's no big deal. Look at my guys. They threw his, their you know, staff down and they became a snake. And then Moses' staff went and ate up their snakes. And so whenever Moses did something, he would, Pharaoh would have his conjurers conjure something up too, and then God's would be bigger. So the devil has power, and that's what we have to remember. We're going up against a demonic power. But Ephesians said when Jesus died and he went to the right hand of the Father, all principalities, all powers, all demonic forces were under his feet. That includes Satan. And then in Ephesians 2, it says we are seated with Jesus in heavenly places. That puts it all under our feet, too. So when we use the name of Jesus, they're all under our feet. We have nothing to be afraid of. So I know we're talking about a lot of really scary things, and I'm really sorry about that. But I want to, before we go on our break, remind uh, everyone that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord.